Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Alvaro Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends Giselle Donnelly, also from the American Enterprise Institute, and Julia Zoja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Jason Blessing, a Jean Kirkpatrick visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and author, actually co-editor most recently of NATO 2030 towards a new strategic concept, which is coming out with uh, GHU University, uh, Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, if you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Giselle, I'm going to turn to you to open the first line of questioning um, of, 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 of Jason's, and then, then the two of us will, will, will chime in. I, I'm, um, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, you know, only, only the, the guilty are accused, so uh, I'm very glad uh, Jason could join us. Not simply because he's uh, uh, thought a lot about um, the geopolitical situation in Europe, but because... Uh, he is one of our uh, experts in cyber warfare, electronic warfare, gray zone warfare, all kinds of warfare that don't necessarily involve direct killing of other human beings. And, and that's, <laughs> that's a good I definition. Think, yeah. Well, okay. It, it supports it the killing of other human beings. So let's not let's not sugarcoat it. But to get to get uh, temporarily serious. Jason, this is one of the dogs that really hasn't barked in the Ukraine war. I, I think there are there are many ways to to deconstruct this, but a couple of them that certainly occurred to me is I'm struck by how successful the Ukrainians have been at preserving their networks and how much difficulty the Russians have had, not simply in taking down uh, Ukrainian command and control. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, one of the things we should also talk about is sort of the larger uh, issue of strategic communications, which again seems to have been very uh, uh, um, a battlefield that the Ukrainians have excelled at and the Russians not so much, although I suppose their domestic uh, uh, information front, uh, as far as one can tell, is uh, still under control. Uh, but the Russians, broadly speaking, uh, you know, have done all kinds of dumb things like, you know, communicating in the clear, uh, you name it. It's almost, it's, it's, it's been very surprising, I think, especially to people who thought that the Russian army had reformed itself uh, and, uh, and so forth. So um, I'd be interested in, in your take on both sides of that equation. Well, absolutely. Well, first off, thanks for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and, you know, to your point that it's been the dog that has embarked, my usual response with, you know, what's going on in cyber in Ukraine is, well, everything and nothing. Uh, everything in the sense that, you know, with the forensics that we have now and the data that we have, as early as March 2021, the Russians were poking around in critical infrastructure and Ukraine, and particularly, you know, in government uh, service providers and in the defense ecosystem. 
uh, A, which isn't a surprise given that this has been their MO for quite a long time, uh, but activity really started picking up and was more directed in March 2021 about being able to pre-position on Ukrainian networks. Uh, so there have been quite a few instances and compromises, and we've got uh, several different strains of malware that have been released across the course of the invasion. But the other side of that is I think a lot of us have underestimated uh, the resilience of Ukrainian networks and practices. Uh, and of course, there's an international dimension to that that we can't ignore. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Let me ask a quick question. Do you think the Russians sort of went off half-cocked in this? Um, and um, uh, as you said, uh, this has not just been a Russia versus Ukraine uh, contest. Um, uh, and as you quite also really put out, uh, maybe the dog that didn't bark is not the right metaphor, but the duck paddling furiously underwater while cruising along comfortably on the surface. But uh, I, I leave the uh, animal analogies to you. And but 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 seriously, um, uh, if you could elaborate on, uh, you know, again, whether you, th you think the Russians have did not design their campaign, so to speak, very well. Um, and, and and what do you, what are your thoughts or what do you know about the sort of large, certainly the United States has played a large role in this, but uh, I can imagine that uh, our closest allies have likewise, you know, uh, been contributing to uh, helping to keep the Ukrainians up and running and making life miserable for the Russians. Right. On the, on the Russian front, I see there are really two drivers in my mind behind why we haven't seen more impactful cyber operations. Uh, I think first and foremost, and the most, you know, the one with the most weight would be, uh, you know, it's not that cyber operations were half-cocked, it's that overall strategy was half-cocked, hmm. uh, to use your terms. Uh, you know, the, the thing that I try to harp on is that cyber operations don't exist in a vacuum. Uh, you know, they're highly interdependent on what you're trying to do in conventional kinetic realms. Uh, so if, you're, if your goal is, and if your assumptions are to take over the country, and you think this will be a quick smash and grab, and you'll be welcomed with open arms, you don't want to, you know, you break it, you buy it. You don't want to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure if you have to govern slash rule over a population. And you're not going to put the time and effort and energy for really complex cyber operations uh, if you think it's going to be a quick victory, which there are some other dynamics behind you know, developing those types of operations. But strategy is necessarily going to shape what you're trying to do uh, in the cyber domain. I think the second uh, impact of why we haven't seen at least more coordination with, uh, you know, there have been cyber operations that have coincided with uh, military activities on the ground. But the question is, how much of that is actually integrated planning, uh, both with, you know, across uh, these cyber threat actors, uh, so, you know, largely groups under the GRU, military intelligence, uh, SVR, you know, foreign intelligence service, or the FSB, the internal security service. All three of those have overlapping responsibilities and overlapping operations. Uh, it's kind of an organizational mess for the Russians. Uh, but they don't coordinate with each other. They compete with each other over, you know, credibility within that ecosystem, you know, whose mission it is. Uh, and even more so, is the question is, I really don't think that the Russians can integrate and have the ability to plan uh, 
non-conventional, uh, non-kinetic cyber operations with actually, you know, combined arms operations on the ground. Uh, so on the on the Russian hand, you know, on the Russian side, those two really contribute to, you know, the lack of a big bang. I want to stay on the Russians a bit um, and ask you about their what we should expect in layman terms in terms of their aggression towards the West. Um, we in the mere mortals, you know, that just read about cybersecurity within the NATO space, the way we have conceptualized, if that's the right word, Russian cyber aggression against the West has been in connection to politics, political interference here and there, um, but not as a as a strategy that can really damage the West, um, not in terms of attacks on critical infrastructure that occur and, and stuff like that. So basically my question is, to what extent have we overestimated the Russians? And then on the other side, what should we expect in terms of our, we cannot be non-vulnerable in terms of our vulnerabilities and their attacks against us that can hurt us um, in the coming months, say. Could I, if I can just add two cents to, to what Julia is asking, because I think this is a very important question. Uh, you know, the, the West, the United States and our allies, we have done a lot that certainly angers the Russians, right? Arming Ukraine, doing all sorts of stuff. They, they clearly can't respond in conventional terms without provoking a war with with NATO or starting a war with NATO. But, but, but you would sort of expect them to respond with more and more sort of cyber operations targeting, targeting the West. So, so in a way, is that the dog that hasn't barked? Or, or is there much more stuff going on than, than 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 before? If so, it doesn't seem to be terribly terribly effective. That's uh, that is a very good point that both Dalvor, you and Yulia raise, and it's I would say in terms of have we overestimated the Russians? I don't think so. It's just we we haven't been specific with how we're assessing them. Um, you know, on one hand, uh, you know. These services that undertake these long-term operations against the U.S., uh, it's they have their hands full right now, right? Uh, Ukraine is not the war is not going the way that they thought they would, uh, and there's more energy and attention that has to be diverted there. So on one hand, that's probably one reason we haven't seen government-affiliated activity more on Western networks, whether it be EU members, NATO, NATO members, or U.S. networks specifically. Uh, but I think where the distinction comes in is these highly destructive, you know, crippling cyber attacks uh, that we are expecting or have expected. You know, that's not really what Russia has excelled at. What they've really excelled at is long term exploitation and espionage. Uh, they have been much more adept at getting footholds into networks, moving laterally uh, from, you know, different software onto different networks and across networks. Uh, to position assets for long-term espionage uh, and potentially disruption down the line. Uh, but for the most part, it's been used for intelligence collection. Uh, and for instance, that's with the solar winds compromise, you know, mm -hmm. that that's that's a, a perfect case of compromise one company, infiltrate and alter their software product a little bit. You have a lot of users downstream, whether it's in the private sector or in the public sector, US government agencies. And you can just sit and look and examine those networks uh, and, you know, 
try to stay hidden as best you can and increase the intelligence payoff. Uh, but that's, you know, we haven't, what we should be expecting is along those lines. One thing I'm a little surprised about is that uh, Putin and the Kremlin haven't sort of given free reign to the ransomware ecosystem that's originated out of Russia. That's one thing I would have expected by now that we would have seen a lot more of is criminal activity, right? And some of which, you know, government affiliated advanced persistent threats. Uh, it looks a little bit like criminal activity, so I'm surprised we haven't seen some of that. Uh, but what we have started to see is a little more sophisticated malware that's being released. And what I'm thinking a little, getting into the weeds a little bit, uh, there's a strain of ma malware that has been identified called Pipe Dream, which targets industrial control systems. Uh, we haven't, uh, you know, forensics has not, from the private sector and a lot of these cybersecurity companies, we haven't traced it back to a specific actor yet, but you can't ignore the context that in some way this is likely associated with what's happening or not happening in Ukraine and part of longer term efforts on the hands of possibly the Russians uh, to infiltrate control systems and industry. In the, in the recent article, you um, you mentioned, you mentioned um, the um, Senate Intelligence Committee chairman, Mark Warner, who suggested that if there are cyber attacks from Russia, they should be treated as act, acts of war, triggering NATO's collective response. Um, and you explain in the piece, which uh, comment to everybody's attention why that's ridiculous. Uh, but but if you could tell our listeners what NATO's or the US response should be, and 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 how that varies depending on you know the the scale, magnitude, character of 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 of, of the cyber attacks or cyber nuisances or you know borderline criminal activity um that would be that would be really helpful right well two first to his credit senator warner has done a good job of pushing some cyber legislation through the problem i have is just sort of a narrow scope and a narrow view of talking about the issues uh and you know the the i would say the background to your question valibor and that i try to highlight in my piece is it is extremely rare that any cyber attack could bring about the death or destruction as a missile launch, right? It's just, that's just not how things work in the cyber domain. So the really the, the likelihood that it would be raised to a causeless belly, uh, you know, a cause of war, is highly unlikely. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, you know, NATO Article 5, as we all know, an attack on one member can be considered an attack on all if it's triggered by, uh, by a NATO member. Uh, and most of NATO's planning has focused on collective defense. I mean, this idea of deterrence, you know, if where does the question is when do cyber attacks reach the level that Article 5 could be triggered? You know, the question is at what point could a cyber attack constitute uh, the, and need a, an armed response? So NATO's, NATO's strategy in this area has been a little too focused on deterrence and not enough on resilience. And I know Yuli and I have been working with a group that is really focused on the development of NATO's strategic concept. Uh, one of my main arguments in the in the edited volume, NATO 2030, that you introduced, Alibor, is, you know, NATO's got some good justification and some good basis for expanding cyber resilience with its cyber defense pledge uh, and some of its Article 3 uh, priorities. Uh, but we really need to explicitly factor this in because without a strategy of resilience, and I'd be happy to talk a little bit more about that, but without that, when you lean on deterrence in Article 5 in a NATO context, you, you risk losing all your credibility because, you know, if you say everything could be 
trigger, you know, could trigger Article 5, but then nothing does, you're sort of beating a dead horse. I want to go back for a second to something you said, um, that a cyber attack could, the unlikelihood of a cyber attack um, triggering Article 5 in the sense of an armed response. But wouldn't, because uh, I know there were conversations in the early days of war of um, uh, the possibility of one of the neighboring NATO countries to Ukraine um, triggering Article 5 because all of them or the majority of them have been and could trace um, attacks back uh, on their infrastructure against sort of Ukraine um, from the Russian side. But in my understanding, that would rather create a discussion within NATO, as we know it, political, about um, an attack in kind. So a counter, an offensive, counter-offensive, is that the term, um, attack, um, uh, cyber attack. And so then the question is, in my understanding, do NATO member states abroad have the legislative and the um, technical means to the legislative permission sort of to act and the technical means to do that, um, to launch a counter um, a counter attack, counter cyber attack against Russia. Because in my understanding, at least the absolute majority are just unprepared for that. All right. I think, uh, you know, there are there are obviously technical challenges to being able to launch a counterattack. And if we're talking specifically within a NATO context, right, uh, NATO's one of their most recent frameworks as of 2019, the uh, the acronym is SKEPVA, but it's it's escaping me right now. Uh, the the entire but it's uh, it's essentially the volunteering of cyber effects uh, of sovereign cyber effects to NATO operations. So essentially what that means is, you know, a member state, you know, should NATO undertake some sort of action militarily, member states can volunteer the effects without handing over control to NATO commanders of the cyber operation. So they'll say, hey, we'll do X for you, but we're not going to tell you how we did it. Um, there are only five nations that have actually said we will, we will actively contribute. So there are technical questions. I think what you point to, though, are the bigger political questions of actually counterattacking or counterstriking, even in kind. Uh, and what comes to mind uh, most pressingly is attack attribution is a member state prerogative. That's, uh, you know, NATO is not itself going to attribute a cyber attack uh, to Russia. It's, it's going to be something that member states do. Uh, and even, you know, we've seen previously, uh, I know a scholar that's uh, working out of Switzerland who focuses on sort of the attribution issues, Uh, even if you agree on it, you're not going to always announce that you're attributing a cyber attack, right? It's got to be something really big. Uh, but even then, you know, you need you need a unanimous res uh, unanimous response uh, from member states to be able to even launch something within the NATO conceptual framework anyway. Uh, so I see that as highly unlikely because member states are going to disagree on attribution, even if they agree. You know, they're not going to want to share their sources and methods of how they reach that attribution because that's sensitive intelligence. You know, signals intelligence is one of the most sensitive pieces of statecraft that we have, and that extends to cyberspace. Uh, and then, you know, and then the question becomes, well, who's going to actually launch the counterattack? And if you launch a counterattack in kind, then it, in, in that sense, you're also you're burning one of your own domestic exploits that you have on an adversarial network that could be used for a greater payoff down the line in a national context than an international one. So there are a lot of there, as you as you rightly point out, there are a lot of political hurdles that make yeah, this like, really a mess. I mean, that 
is entirely analogous to the way the alliance was going to work in a kinetic, you know, normal warfare situation. You know, uh, uh, units were going to remain under national command, and uh, you know, in in an alliance wide war, I think we would have had a difficult time discerning what exactly NATO headquarters uh, was doing. But before we leave the Russian question entirely, I just want to, I have a um, I have a pet theory that I want to run by you, Jason, is this, um, that uh, the Russian cyber capacity is perhaps not dissimilar from the capacity of their armed forces. That is that the veneer of competence of capability at the high end as, as the war in Ukraine has like approved in spades was always actually pretty small. And as you have schooled me, at least on many times, uh, you know, when you're counting the number of, uh, you know, cyber tons or whatever that's that's measured in teams of of people i mean you got to have bodies who who may concentrate on tactical things or you know that's not dissimilar from uh, other forms of uh, organization and at some point and especially as we've seen the russian army do they've run out of good stuff um, and I can't imagine that conscripting cyber warriors would be uh, any more successful than, uh, you know, pulling in uh, Syrian mercenaries or the Wagner Group or something like so that. So you have to wonder what the cyber equivalent of the T-62 yeah, 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 tanks. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Updated software. <laughs> Whether the special <laughs> turret popping uh, button on the uh, on the dashboard, right? That's how, so, do you think it's possible that, as, you know, as you say, that this is going much more slowly and much more difficult, uh, difficultly uh, from Moscow's point of view? And I just wonder whether uh, they've got the assets to to conduct the kind of uh, you know attacks or operations that that people have been describing if they're otherwise engaged just again paddling furiously to to avoid to stave off a catastrophic uh, defeat in ukraine in other words i guess does russia have the capacity for a cyber war strategy i, I just don't know i'm just trying to reason from what we can observe yeah. and draw an analogy I think I would agree with you, Giselle. And uh, Yulia, to your point, I think the answer is yes, but the question is, can they do this in a prolonged conflict? Uh, and, you know, I think to put a little meat on the bones of your hypothesis, Giselle, yes, it's a lot of what you're seeing. And I think what you will see is, you know, on the one hand, the strategic payoff of cyber, cyber operations over the long term, it's decreasing, right? Uh, it, there's a much more focus on Okay, let's see if we can. I mean, even in the early days, uh, a little diatribe. Uh, you know, most of the effects that were happening on internet outages, one of the major ones had nothing to do with the cyber operation, and it was a cutting of fiber operative cables in Sumi, uh, which was, you know, you don't have to click a keyboard to do that. Um, 
but the, the, the personnel issues are real and it's the same, again, they're very good at what they do in terms of espionage. Uh, but over the long run, you know, a, how do you recruit more people into the military to do this when there looks like they're turning to conscription for regular forces? Uh, the people just aren't there. And for two reasons, I would think is one, you have so much brain drain uh, from Russia in terms of this, you know, the, the technical workforce is just leaving. And you can look, if you want sort of a, you know, a proxy measurement, how many companies like there, like Kaspersky are there in Russia? Not many. How many analogous companies do we have in the U.S.? I mean, you could, you know, count fingers, toes and line up, you know, it's, you could count for days on, on the number of cybersecurity or high tech companies that we have. And that's, you know, that's indicative of where talent goes. Uh, the other is the people that they do have left, it's way more lucrative to operate off the grid in a criminal network. Um, there's there's a lot of talent. That, it's hard to, it's uh, hard to mobilize in, you know, highly for mercurial. a low budget <laughs> yeah, military operation. It really is. I mean, if it's easier to use ransomware to line your pocket than it is to, you know, uh, occasionally align yourself with the Kremlin uh, for national purposes. That's a lovely you really program think. you have there, Igor. I'd like to have it. <laughs> Exactly. But it, it, it sounds like, you know, maybe we shouldn't be overly concerned uh, by, by, by Russia's capabilities in the, in the, in the, in the, in the cyber domain. That there is, in, in a way, the character of the regime makes, makes itself self-limiting, these, 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 these efforts, because they are so human capital intensive and, 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 and rely so much on the existence of a vibrant sort of private sector that that does cyber stuff uh that there isn't much that they can they can do but they still can do stuff so i wonder if you could tell us more about um you know that 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 that, that resilience dimension of 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 the western response and and also maybe place it in the in the context of what's happening in 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 ukraine and 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 Tell us a little bit more if you if you if you're sort of privy to the details of of the character of the Ukrainian response and and then their resilience because that seems to be a big component of why why you know Ukraine is still up and running and why the sort of chains of communication seem to be seem to be open within the military and and, and government etc. It it is not just the Russian incompetence but also the fact that the Ukrainians clearly had been preparing for this for for a long time and had done a pretty pretty good job so if there are any lessons to be teased maybe for for nato and and individual countries you know yeah, sure that uh and so there are two parts to that uh, i think that we can really address is one ukrainian resilience because the situation that ukraine and ukrainians are facing in cyberspace is different than what the rest of the west is facing right uh so the lessons aren't one-to-one -one, but i think there are some takeaways um in terms of you know what the what in let's focus on the Ukrainians first, right? Let's there are three reasons I think why we have really seen uh, and underestimated the resilience uh, in terms of uh, not only you know the people on the ground, but of the ability to keep operators to keep doing their jobs, to keep essential services online, you know, to keep the private sector functioning in some capacity, uh, to keep government communications open, of course. Uh, one is experience. Uh, they have been dealing with all sorts of Russian intrusions for years, right? And I know everyone likes to point back to 2017 uh, and the NotPetya malware that, uh, you know, 
really it sped past Ukraine, so that's one of the ones that everyone knows. But even dating before that, uh, meddling in the electric grid in 2015 with black energy, uh, Trojan malware, they've been dealing with this for quite some time. Uh, so experience pays off in the long run if you're willing to learn uh, and sort of reconfigure your practices. Uh, a second factor that has really helped with communications has been outside private sector Starlink, actors baby, Starlink. Uh, coming to aid. Uh, particularly, well, I mean, that is, yes, that is, you know, I guess we could count that as private sector, uh, even though it's, it's public U.S. dollars. But uh, if we look at, you know, the impact that Amazon uh, and Microsoft have had in particular. Uh, the private sector actors have been helping back up uh, network data and uh, network bandwidth on cloud services, and in many cases, distributing and disaggregating some of those functions and data across several different cloud providers. Uh, so that, you know, right now, is, there's less of a concern about usability, which when you disaggregate, for instance, like a data set uh, that a network's running on, it's a little harder to use. Uh, and a little harder to to defend, but in this sense, when you do that, it it reduces uh, the entire attack service by making it a little more complex for the attacker to to get in and to manipulate and to put the entire picture together. Uh, so that has been extremely uh, extremely beneficial. Uh, and then finally, the the international partnerships and capacity buildings that has taken place, and you know, particularly since 2017, the U.S. Uh, and other other bilateral partners, we can talk about Estonia, uh, but also uh, from international organizations like NATO itself, and particularly the EU, have thrown in a ton of money to try and help bolster uh, civil and governmental capacity uh, for just network provisions, network services in Ukraine. Uh, you know, USAID uh, here in the U.S. has dumped a ton of money within the last three years, I think. Um, one of the big things that at least I'm focused on is Department of Defense efforts. Uh, in December of 2021, so before the invasion happened, the U.S. Cyber Command sent hunt forward teams uh, to Ukraine on the ground to go and interface with, you know, their counterparts in military intelligence. And essentially what that allows us to do is partner with Ukrainians, get eyes on their networks, help them clear out any malware, uh, any presence, any beacons that are on there um, for malicious actor, including the Russians. And then we broadcast it to the world, including our own private sector. Uh, so that, you know, there's there's greater intelligence sharing that way. Uh, and this has continued, right? It's We don't have boots on the ground in Ukraine right now, but, you know, it's not hard to imagine that the U.S. or other Five Eyes countries with an intelligence presence are remotely assisting uh, in disclosing malware intelligence and network intelligence to Ukrainians to help them out. Uh, and, and that's just the defensive end, right? Uh, so that's those are three big uh, reasons I see for why we've underestimated uh, the ability for Ukraine to keep their networks up and running. And uh, Dalibor, I think your second part of your question is the takeaways for the West, right? Yes. Yes. The, so the takeaways for the West is, uh, and sort of linking this back to resilience, is the real threat is death by a thousand cuts, right? It's, and, it, and that's an attention problem also, right? Uh, it's not always the uh, flashing lights and you know cyber Armageddon. Uh, those while those get the headlines, uh, that's not really the bulk of the activity in this domain, right? It's really more of stealing intellectual property theft, encrypting files, and having to pay a ransom that cuts into bottom lines for corporations and individuals. It's you know collecting intelligence across government agencies that can undermine future action. 
you know, the Russians in the lead up to Ukraine, one thing we can take away is they were looking at not only military, but diplomatic and humanitarian efforts in case there were a war were to break out. Uh, so gathering intelligence on that. And it's really it's death by a thousand cuts. Uh, and the 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 key takeaway I would have for strategy formulation, which is where it doesn't really jive with deterrence efforts, is that failure in cyberspace is inevitable. You cannot stop everything. You have to expect at some point your networks will get compromised. You will be taken offline. So the question is, how do you get back up and running as soon as possible? How do you minimize risks beforehand and going forward? And how do you, in getting back up online, how do you adapt as quickly as possible with lessons learned moving forward, right? There's, there's an element of risk minimization, which doesn't necessarily jive with the deterrence. There's an element of forecasting and foresight, which, you know, it, it's very much a U.S. thing in terms of what are, what's the net assessment of X, Y, Z, right? But that, that type of foresight is how do you bake that into a comprehensive a strategy so that you're not relying solely on you know, cyber deterrence, which I think is, you know, if it is effective, its scope is so limited that it's not useful, at least for most threats. I was wondering if that lesson learned for us, for the West, um, is also, or if you can build a bridge to the following question. Um, we've heard now from you um, that there is significantly more, I guess, invisible cyber um, aid that we're providing for Ukraine. Uh, and that we were, unlike in other domains, not very, very slow. Um, and so I guess the question that I have before we wrap up is what um, what is the West not doing that could make a big difference to Ukraine in the cyber domain, in the gray zone domain? What are um, What is something that the Ukrainians maybe are anticipating, maybe are not, but that we could do better to, um, to prevent collapse? That's a great question. And to be honest with you, I don't think I have a, a very satisfying answer uh, outside of, uh, on the one hand, I think what we're doing is actually we're actually doing a lot more than is publicly available. And I, one way to read into this is not only the, yes, they have been vague, but the cybersecurity warnings put out by the U.S. government, uh, you know, individually, but also at least once a month or twice a month, you're seeing warnings come out in unison from the five eyes. Uh, that degree of cooperation and collaboration for warnings uh, on, you know, whatever the threat may be, uh, that shows me that what's going on behind the scenes in terms of information sharing uh, and intelligence sharing, it's, you know, it's at levels that I didn't think we would be doing at this point, to be honest with you. Uh, so that is, I think, in one, on one hand, we're doing a lot. Uh, at the same time, you know, from a U.S. specific context, uh, and this, I think you could generalize this point, from a U.S. specific context, what could we do to make sure we're in a better situation to help Ukraine with these threats is to get our own house in order in terms of bureaucratic responsibilities and our own internal sharing. Uh, and, you know, in the U.S., we have problems. It's not a surprise. It's gotten better. I will say that for sure. But sharing between the National Security Agency, U.S. Cyber Command, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, uh, the FBI, uh, and sharing with the private sector, uh, it's a mess. It's a giant spaghetti bowl of, uh, you know, different authorities, different uh, takes on who should take the lead on XYZ threat, uh, you know, 
for instance, with the, one of the recent reporting legislations, there was a, a big fire on, on the Hill over whether, CISA, whether and when CISA will notify the FBI over intrusions, because the previous version of that, the FBI was not satisfied with because they weren't the co-point on private sector reporting of malware disclosure. Uh, so it's, it's small things like this that add up, right? And it, it's, a bigger, it's a bigger question of coordinating internally across barriers within government and across with the private sector to actually make malware disclosure, for instance, but just cybersecurity in general as a better business decision. Uh, and we're starting to see some of that. You know, the war has been a catalyst, uh, but there's a lot of work to be done to where we put ourselves in the U.S. in a better situation uh, for cyber defense and cyber resilience, uh, but also for us to be able to react and much more quickly uh, and help out Ukraine. Before we go, uh, we ought to offer you a chance to run a commercial for the NATO 2030 study. So, oh. <laughs> so, so to try to get from where we are to there. Well, I think, I mean, we should probably have you back because I think it's, it's, it's certainly something that, that we have discussed among ourselves. But, um, you know, what you, if we're having a hard time getting up, getting our government up to the speed of cyber, if I can use that as a shorthand term, doing that on an alliance scale, uh, especially on a, given the quality of the NATO alliance, uh, which also has, you know, a bunch of, um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, quasi-quizzling governments at the moment, um, uh, strikes me as a challenge. And also, cyber may not be always an act of war, but it is part of a strategic competition. Sometimes it's an act of piracy. Sometimes it's an act of privateering, and sometimes it rises to the level of war. So if our goal is to make free Europe as robust as it can possibly be, and we have exposure on, because geography matters too, uh, across the Eastern Front, to coin a phrase, what is NATO 2030 or, you know, this space for your notes 2030 uh, look like? to you in a way that would make the alliance, the coalition, American interests in Europe well prepared for the kinds of challenges you've sketched across this program? Sorry for the long winding road so, question, but. Uh, oh, that's that's okay. It gives, me, it uh, gives me time to think of a quick book plug. So, you know, NATO 2030, it's out now. It is free online. We do have some hard copies that you can order off of places like Amazon. It is a great, uh, intergenerational uh, transatlantic volume with scholars that don't necessarily agree with each other, but all bring an important view to different parts of the impending strategic concept that'll be released. Um, to the cyber part, which I happily wrote a chapter about, um, you know, I think what I would like to see and where there's room to improve is go for the low hanging fruit. And in NATO specifically, you know, there has been a vague nebulous conversation around resilience and, you know, all the resiliency targets that are voluntary uh, and, you know, couched in NATO's Article 3 that, you know, we'll do everything we can individually and together to make sure that we're ready to carry out all the other obligations in the treaty, uh, including Article 5. Uh, most of that has been done in the sense of self-help, right? Well, I'll take care of myself and that's what I'll bring. Cyberspace is not quite that. 
right? It's it's hard to draw a hard border and hard distinction of when one network begins and the other ends. Uh, so the low-hanging fruit that NATO has is part of my chapter, and my argument is to shift the conversation a little bit. Uh, and Julia, some of this should sound familiar to you because, you know, having worked with Dan Hamilton a little bit uh, on NATO issues, uh, the language appeals to me. But uh, cybersecurity issues are a shared security issue, and it's interdependent to the point where, you know, you can't just rely on self-help. You have to actively engage with others across the alliance to enhance your own cybersecurity, right? Their network security necessarily impacts yours. And the, the second part of that is security has to be projected forward to the alliance's partners. And, and Ukraine is obviously one of those, right? It, it's, it's a no-brainer, I would say, that what happens in Ukraine doesn't stay in Ukraine in cyberspace. We've seen that before. We're seeing that now. Uh, so, you know, cybersecurity that is shared and projected forward outside of the alliance, that's a big part of it. But uh, part of actually formalizing this shared and forward cyber resilience across the alliance, we've got to come up with a few more metrics in terms of, you know, we have to actually measure what resilience is doing. There's some really good folks that are working on lessons learned in the alliance that I spoke with. Uh, but all of that's available on a voluntary basis, and it's it it hasn't been, you know, in in the social scientist in me coming out is, it hasn't been really it doesn't have a rigorous methodology for drawing lessons and disseminating those to members, right? There's a trove of information that can be gleaned from you know whatever information has been submitted to the alliance from members about compromises. We need to formalize that. Uh, and, you know, part of part of I guess the broader challenge is. NATO needs to look forward uh, in terms of not only kinetically and conventionally, but in cyberspace, what are the emerging threats and emerging technologies? That's really centralized at the national level. Uh, but there's a way that you can sort of, you know, you can't vet every single piece of software that's going to come out, but the NATO standardization office can put out best guidelines and best rules. Uh, and really in a, in a perfect world, I would like to see the alliance move towards an explicit, a voluntary, but an explicit code of conduct for operating in cyberspace for military operations. Uh, and I think you could get a lot of uh, it, partners signed on to that in East Asia, for example. Um, so that's, you know, that's my grand ambitions for the Alliance's strategic concept for cybersecurity. Jason, thank you so much. Uh, we have to have you back I suppose in July after the Madrid summit to see whether the new strategic concept uh, you know, rises to 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 you know the expectations and demands you would have placed on it. Uh, we have some of our AI colleagues as semi regulars on this podcast. They have all you know enjoyed the experience very much, and and you'll be the first ones to receive our podcast merch when that comes online. <laughs> um, so so that's Looking that's my pitch to, to you. That's my pitch to you. Um, from Dalibor Rohaj and Zell Donnelly and Yulia Sosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. And many thanks to our special guest today, Jason Blessing. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, written as one word. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.